0: Amen. Take a Bible. Tonight we are looking at 2 Samuel 11 through 12. Today's Ash Wednesday. Let me start off with a Catholic story um, tonight. I think you'll like this story. This is pretty good. Pope John Paul died in 2005 and if you've lived through a papal succession, you know that it is quite an ordeal. The decision is not made immediately. Uh, There's lots of conclaves and meetings and burnings and different things going on. And so there's all sorts of speculation. Who's in the running? Who's going to be the next pope? How's it going to work out? So Pope John Paul dies, 2005. The church begins the process. And really, there's sort of a short list. People that those in the know say, this guy has a chance, this guy has a chance, this guy has a chance. So there's a guy named Rogers Cadenhead. Rogers Cadenhead. And he gets the idea while they're looking for the next pope, I'm going to go out and I'm going to register domain names, internet domain names, using the names of the men that I think could end up being the next pope or the name that the next pope might select, and he starts registering all those domain names and thinking, maybe that will be of some profit to me. So he registers the internet domain. The new pope has not been selected, but he registers a website, wwwbenedictthe 16com just happens that the next pope is Pope Benedict the Sixteen. And the Catholic Church does not want just anyone to have that website. And so Mr. Rogers Cadenhead said, I'll tell you what, I'll make you a deal. And the church thinks he wants money. Well, the church has money. He didn't want money. He wanted three things from the Catholic Church. Okay, here's what he wanted. Number one, a fancy Vatican hat. That was the first thing on his list. You want One of those fancy hats they wear at the Vatican. Number two, I want a free night at the Vatican Hotel. I didn't know the Vatican had a hotel, but apparently they do, and it must be nice because he said, I want one free night at the Vatican Hotel. And number three, he said, I want complete absolution, that's forgiveness, complete absolution with no questions asked for the third week of March 1987. I'm not asking for all of my sins to be forgiven. But the third week of March 1987, I will give you this domain in exchange for absolution. Hat, hotel, absolution for the third week of March. Catholic Church said, no, we're not negotiating in that way, which surprises me a little bit. He donated the domain to a nonprofit group and they passed it along at some point. This is a guy who looked back at his past. And the story's kind of funny. That third week in March 1987 bothers him. Something happened that week that he looks back on and he's not proud of. He's ashamed of. He's embarrassed about it. He doesn't want any questions asked. He doesn't want to talk about it. He just knows there's something back there that happened. Something that I did that's a problem. This is one of those episodes in David's life where you look back and you say, this was the third week, March 1987. This was not his finest moment. Peterson kicks us off. He leads us into a discussion tonight with this. He says, two names are unforgettably linked with David. People who are otherwise illiterate in the scriptures know these names. One name is the giant Goliath, and the other is the woman Bathsheba. And he's saying, these are the two people you think about when you think about David. You think about David and Goliath, and you think about David and Bathsheba. It's hard to teach lessons in Sunday school, big kids, grown kids, adults, big church when everyone thinks they know the story. And he's saying everyone knows these two stories. One name is the giant Goliath, the other is the woman Bathsheba. The physical forms attached to the names could hardly be more different. Different. Goliath an ugly cruel giant. Bathsheba a beautiful gentle woman. Goliath an evil tyrant. Bathsheba an innocent victim. But as different as Goliath and Bathsheba are in character, appearance, and spirit, there's a similarity in their relation to David. Both bring David to a field of testing, a place of encounter that reveals David's heart. In the episode with Goliath, we see something noble, something godly, something we can aspire to. In the episode with Bathsheba, we do not see those things. So, 2 Samuel 11 12 We're going to jump in. I want you to understand David's fall into sin started long before his affair with Bathsheba. What happened in 2 Samuel 11 and 12 did not happen out of nowhere. There was a context. There was a history. There were other factors that led up to this. It started long before his affair with Bathsheba. We're not going to look up the verses in this section. I just want to throw some of these ideas at you so you're thinking in the right direction. Number one, David was guilty of polygamy. Polygamy. And I gave you the verses. You can go back and, and read all of these breadcrumbs that connect the dots in David's family life. It starts with Michael, and then we read along, and she had stayed behind when, when David fled for his life, and at some point he picks up Abigail as a wife. It's a, an interesting story. Abigail's a, an amazing story, and you're not surprised that he marries this woman, even though he has a wife that he's left behind. He marries Abigail, and then just right there he marries a second woman. And the text just kind of throws it in and you're just sort of left scratching your head thinking, okay, the Abigail part I understand, but I'm not sure about Ahinoam. And then he moves to Hebron and he becomes the king and he starts to marry many women. And I imagine in David's mind these were political marriages. They were forming treaties and alliances and solidifying allies and borders and all those sorts of things, but it's problematic. When he moves to Jerusalem we read that he begins to take concubines, plural. And so at this point you say, okay, something is not tracking right. David's read the Torah. He's read the book of Genesis. He knows that in the beginning God created male and female and that the two become one and yet, we read these stories, and there's Michael and Abigail and Ahinoam and the wives and the concubines, and it's all sort of piling up. It's very problematic. You can go back and look at Deuteronomy 17. Deuteronomy 17 is a warning to the kings of Israel. And Deuteronomy 17 says, Look, someday you're going to have a king. And when you have a king, he needs to watch out for three things, okay? Number one, he doesn't need to have a whole lot of horses. Number two, he doesn't need to stockpile gold. Number three, he doesn't need to marry a bunch of women. Don't collect horses and have some big, massive army. Don't stockpile gold like you're going to find security and wealth. And the king does not need to marry a bunch of women. So you're reading through the, the life of David, and David's fighting these battles as king. And there's a detail that shows up several times in the story. It talks about David slaughtering the horses, hamstringing the horses. That's not like an anti-Peta thing. That's David saying, look, I'm, I'm the king. I'm not, supposed to, I'm not supposed to be confident in my army to protect me and To make me safe. I'm supposed to trust God, not horses. We read later that he's getting everything ready to build a temple, and he gives an incredible amount of money away to build a temple. He doesn't hoard it and keep it for himself, and he leads the people to do the same thing. He's giving away this gold. And so the first two boxes he checks, but you read this detail about the wives and you say something's not right here. I almost wish there was places in the Bible. At some point a Bible editor is going to do this they're going to put sound effects in the Bible. They're going to have little buttons. We have greeting cards. You open the greeting card and it plays a song. At some point, you're going to open to one of these verses where David's marrying all these women, and it's going to go, bum, bum, bum. And it's going to help you understand, this is not good. This is not good. We're not actually going to have those kind of Bibles, but you get the idea. This is an ominous note that's sounded here. So David's guilty of polygamy. Secondly, He's guilty of idleness, guilty of idleness. You see this in 2 Samuel 11, verse 1. It says, in the spring of the year, the time when the kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. You can look at a lot of Bible commentators that look at that verse and say David is neglecting his kingly duty. He is not doing, the kings are supposed to go out in the spring, he's supposed to go out and fight, he's not doing that, shame on David. I I don't entirely agree with that. I don't think kings have to fight every battle. This was not the first time David stayed home. I gave you some verses, he'd stayed home before. Guess what? It's not the last time he stays home. He's about 50 years old. He's been the king for decades. This is not a critical battle. This is not a battle that Israel is really in danger of losing. This is like the mop-up crew coming in. David has won the battles. Israel is safe and secure. I personally, you can disagree, but I don't fault David for staying home. What I fault him for is the idleness, right? If you're going to stay home and you're not going to go out when the kings normally go out, the question is, what are you going to do while you're home, And it just appears that he's idle. He's in sort of a rut, and he's not looking to fight sin. He's not looking to actively lead the people. He's just sort of coasting. Coasting is dangerous. So he's guilty of polygamy. He's guilty of idleness. Thirdly, he's guilty of lust. Guilty of lust. Look at 2 Samuel 11, verse 2. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch. There's the idleness. He's walking on the roof of the king's house, that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? I'm going to just be honest with you. I haven't given you all the verses for you to go back and trace this out. But you can follow the breadcrumb of verses and understand, David did not need anyone to tell him who this woman was. The servant, when David says, who is that? Says, isn't it Bathsheba? Isn't it? Isn't it Bathsheba, the, you know, the daughter of Eliam? The wife of Uriah? You can go back and connect the dots David had an advisor. It was his favorite advisor, and his name was Ahithophel. We're going to talk about him in weeks to come, Ahithophel. Ahithophel had a granddaughter, and guess what her name was? Bathsheba. That's his favorite advisor, his most trusted advisor. One of David's mightiest men, one of his best soldiers in the army, one of his inner circle was a man named Eliam. And Eliam had a daughter, and guess what her name was? Bathsheba. Same Bathsheba. Uriah was also in that inner circle. He was one of David's best friends, and he was married to a woman, and her name was Bathsheba. David, in this moment, is not looking for information. David, in this moment, is trying to talk himself into sin. You've done that. I've done that. David's just sort of thinking it through out loud. He sees her. He knows who she is. That's Ahithophel's granddaughter, Eliam's daughter, Uriah's wife. Who is that? And the servant, you can almost hear the tone in their voice. David, isn't it Bathsheba? Isn't it? You know, the daughter of Eliam, who's out fighting, the wife of Uriah. Who's out fighting? He's not listening. He's not looking for information. He's talking himself into sin. He's entertaining thoughts that he doesn't need to be entertaining. So I want you to see there's a build-up to what we're about to read. It doesn't just happen out of nowhere. There's this issue of polygamy that's been building. There's an issue of idleness. There's an issue of lust. Moving on, David's sin with Bathsheba quickly spiraled out of control. And we're going to read a long section here, so take your Bible, follow along. 2 Samuel 11, verse 4. So David sent, and as we read, I want you to pay attention to the word sent or sinned. Okay, just flag it in your mind when we see it. David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I'm pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing, how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, "'Go down to your house and wash your feet.' Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord. He did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, "'Have you not come home from a journey? Why didn't you go to your house?' Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next, and David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. And In the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of the Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab, and he sent it by the hand of Uriah. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger, when you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises and he says to you, why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? David says that, then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, the men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it, and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. And we'll stop right there in the middle of verse 27. That situation gets real bad real fast for David. Swindoll says this, The Bible never flatters its heroes. All the men and women of Scripture have feet of clay, and when the Holy Spirit paints a portrait of their lives, he is a very realistic artist. He doesn't ignore, deny, or overlook The dark side. In what we just read, David sins, this is in your notes, against Bathsheba, against his family, against Uriah, against Joab, against his army, and against Israel. Clearly, the way he's treated Bathsheba is not noble. It's not right. In my quiet time this morning, I I read the end of the book of Judges and it reads like a nightmare. And then you gratefully and gracefully turn the page to the book of Ruth and there's finally some dignity and some hope and some nobility and something positive and encouraging. David is not living out any of those things. David is living out the end of the book of Judges in this passage. He sins against Bathsheba. He sins against Uriah. It's a haunting thought. I don't, I, I've wrestled with this over the last few weeks. The hand that sat down and wrote Psalm 23, The Lord is my shepherd shall not want, is the same hand that sits down and writes a note to Joab that says, you make sure this man dies. And in between the lines saying, I have a pregnancy and an affair to cover up. Same hand. Writes both. He sends it in Uriah's hands. Joab gets wrapped up in this. Joab was a, a rotten dude. He was a tough dude. He was a mean dude. If David had just come out and told him the whole thing, he probably would have gone along with it either way, but he gets suckered into it without really knowing all the details. What about the other men who died? It wasn't just Uriah in that battle. They didn't do anything to deserve that other than being randomly, quote-unquote, randomly assigned to the wrong unit on the wrong day. They lose their lives. They leave behind widows, orphans. Clearly, he's not ruling as the king. There's a lot of sin here. It spirals quickly, and there's a couple of lessons I want you to see before we move on. One lesson is you can pick your sin, but you don't get to pick the consequences of your sin. That is painfully true. And I imagine if that servant had come to David when David said, "'Who is that woman?' And the servant would have said, David, that's Bathsheba, granddaughter of Ahithophel, daughter of Eliam, wife of Uriah. And if you do what you think you want to do, this is what's going to happen. And had laid it all out for David, I imagine David would have run so fast in the other direction, you couldn't even seem. That's not how it works, is it? You can pick your sin, but you do not get to pick the consequences of your sin. I've sat with people on so many occasions and they've looked at me and they've said, if I knew this was how it was going to work out, I would have never done it in the first place. And you feel for those people. You also want to slap those people. Because you just want to say, that's not how it works. When God warned about the danger of sin, did you think that didn't apply to you? When the author of Proverbs talks about carrying fire next to your chest, did you think you would not be burned in that situation? You can pick your sin. You don't get to pick your consequences. Secondly, one sin never fixes a previous sin. Your mama said two wrongs don't make a right, and she was right. Look, it's, if it's human nature to do anything, I think it's human nature to think, okay, I've done a bad thing and I need to do one more bad thing to fix it. I've watched some movies and some TV shows in the last 10 years. They are not trying to honor God. They are not trying to portray a biblical worldview. They are not trying to point you to Jesus. They are just imitating life. And some of these very secular shows depict very painfully what happens when you live with the mindset I just need to do one more bad thing to cover up the last bad thing I did. And then I just need to do one more bad thing to cover up the last bad thing that I did. And then I just need to do one more bad thing. It never never ends. There's no end to that. You don't get to pick the consequences of your sin, and one sin never fixes a previous sin. So there's David. There's Bathsheba. His servants are there. Uriah shows up. Joab is involved. Did you notice who we didn't read about in all of those verses? God. He doesn't show up till the end of verse 27. It says, when the morning was over, David brought her into his house. She became his wife and bore him a son. Look how it ends. The thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Chapter 12, verse 1, and the Lord sent Nathan to David. David's sin displeased the Lord, and the Lord sent Nathan to confront David. And I just want to make a few points here. When you read that, that horrific chapter, and then it ends with the statement, what David did displeased the Lord. You look at that and you think, well, isn't that the understatement of the century? Like, that's kind of like your mom looking at you saying, I'm very disappointed in you. You know your mom still loves you. She's just trying to guilt you into feeling bad. It displeased the Lord. Look, many times in the Bible we read these stories, these long narrative sections. Take the book of Judges, for example. And the author never gives you an outside perspective on what God thinks about things. He just describes it as it really happened. And you can read the end of the book of Judges, and I mean, it's an absolute train wreck. There's not a lot of commentary that you come across that tells you what God thinks about it. But if you've read other portions of Scripture, you know God is infuriated right now. He is outraged. And so when the author of the Bible stops, especially in these Old Testament narrative sections, and stops and actually says, I just want to be clear about this, this displeased the Lord. It's not an understatement. It's an overstatement. It's the author saying, I don't want you to miss this. I'm not going to leave you to guess. I'm not just going to let you try to figure this out. I'm going to make it very plain to you. God was not happy about this. And all through that chapter, David is in control of the sending. He's sending this person. He's sending that person. He's sending Bathsheba here. He's sending Joab here. He's sending notes, and he's, he's doing all this sending. In chapter 12, a little bit tongue-in-cheek picks it up and says, the Lord sent Nathan to David. Now God's going to do some sending. David's made a mess of it, sending. Now God is going to do the sending. Likato says this, the name not mentioned until the final verse of chapter 11 dominates chapter 12. David, the sender, sits while God takes control. And we're going to read this, and I'm going to make a few points, and I want you to be thinking about how Nathan shows up and how he actually confronts this sin in David's life. So, chapter 12, verse 1, Nathan came to him. He came to David, and he said, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought, and he brought it up. And it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now, there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword. Not the Amorites. Not Joab. You did it. You have struck him down. You've taken his wife to be your wife. You've killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, But I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Just read that again, verse 13. David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. I just want you to think about David and Nathan in this interchange here. One of the things I want you to think about is that when God sent someone to David, he didn't send a stranger. He sent somebody that David knew very, very well. Nathan was the one, you remember, when David said, hey, I want to build a temple, Nathan said, do it. And then that night, when God wanted to put the brakes on the whole thing, he talked to Nathan, not David. And Nathan was the one who went back and said, wait a minute, wait a minute. God says we're not going to do it that way. He doesn't want you to build him a house. Instead, he's going to build you a house. And one of the great messianic prophecies in the entire Bible comes to David through Nathan. That's the guy that God sent. Somebody with an established relationship. Secondly, he confronts David. Nathan confronted David after God allowed him to suffer. You can go look at Psalm 32. Psalm 32 is connected to this story. And in Psalm 32, David says, When I did not confess my sin to you, my bones were wasting away. It's not a bone cancer diagnosis. That's David saying, outwardly, I got away with it. I had that woman. I got rid of her husband. She was pregnant. We did it so quick. No one knew the difference. A month went by. Two months, three months, four months, five months. Almost a whole year goes by. Nothing happens. Outwardly, he got away with it. There was no consequence. Inwardly, David looks back on that and he says, you know how I felt during that season of life? I felt like I was rotting from the inside out. My bones were wasting away. He was suffering. And God just let him suffer for a while. God knew what had happened. God could have sent Nathan immediately He could have sent Nathan the night of. He could have sent Nathan at any point in the process. Instead, he just let David suffer with it for a while. Look, sin brings a lot of consequences externally, it also brings an internal consequence. Outwardly, doing fine. Inwardly, wasting away. You and I got to remember that when we're fighting sin in our lives. You look at it and you think, oh, if I just had it, if I could just do it, if I could just be there. All those people look like they're having so much fun. Inwardly, it rots you. God allowed him to suffer. Last, Nathan confronted David with wisdom and boldness. I mean, it's a beautiful thing that he does. It's wise and it's bold. Wisdom. He doesn't just rush in there and start barking things at David. He leads with a story. Everybody likes a story, so he tells a story. He doesn't pick a story that's unrelatable to David. He picks a story about sheep for the shepherd. And he picks a story about a a poor man and a rich man, and he knows David can remember being a poor man. He can remember not being royalty. He can remember living life on the run and not having a lot. So there's wisdom in how he approaches him. There's also boldness. When he gets David into the corner where he wants him, he just looks at him and says, David, it's you. You're the man. And the things he says, I mean, they're relentless. He says to David, you despise the word of the Lord. David, you killed that man. David, the sword is not going to depart from your house. David, your wives are going to be taken. David, your child is going to die. There's wisdom in how he confronts him. There's also boldness. And i got to be honest with you, the most shocking part of the story, hands down without question, you read all these verses in chapter 11 and the first half of 12, you get to the end, the most shocking part is verse 13 and 14. You've seen the -the behind-the-scenes ugliness of it, You've seen how Nathan has come and backed him into a corner and exposed him. And then it just ends with David confessing his sin and the Lord forgiving his sin. David confessed and the Lord forgave his sin. Verse 13, David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. He'd sinned against a lot of people, right? We went through the list earlier. David's focus is now, finally, where it ought to be. It's not on himself, it's not on other people, but it's on God. And he just simply says, I've sinned against the Lord. In Psalm 51, the psalm he writes as a psalm of confession, he takes that statement even further. Verse 13, I've sinned against the Lord. In Psalm 51, he says, against you and you only have I sinned. He knew all of the people he had sinned against, but he understood that the most heinous, offensive part of sin was that it's offensive to God. It's defiance of God. So he says, I've sinned against the Lord. If you look at Psalm 51 and Psalm 32, he describes his sin as transgression. He uses the word transgression. He uses the word iniquity. And he uses the word sin. Transgression, iniquity, sin. It shows up in Psalm 51. The same trio of words shows up in Psalm 32. They're both connected. Transgression is the idea that God has drawn a line in the sand, as it were, and said, don't cross it. And you and I do what all children do when you give them a line not to cross. We cross it. That's a transgression. God says, you have your wife. Don't take another man's wife. David says, I'm going to walk over that line. God says, you will not commit murder. David says, I don't care what you say. You've drawn the line. I'm going to walk over that line. God says, you shall not want what belongs to your neighbor. David says, I don't care what you say. I'm walking right over that line. It's transgression. Iniquity. Iniquity is the idea that you take something good and you twist it and you pervert it and it becomes something bad. God created marriage. He created men. He created women. He had the idea that two would become one. David is taking something that God meant to be good and he's twisting it in his iniquity and he's perverting it in sin. He's falling short. God sets the standard. This is the target that you're shooting for. David doesn't hit it. Transgression, iniquity, sin. What you really want, at least what I really want, I won't speak for you, but I'll tell you what I really want. I want Nathan... In verse 13, when David says, I've sinned against the Lord, I want like five chapters of lecture. I want Nathan to shame him. And I want Nathan just to bullet point all the problems in what David's done. Oh, you think, David? Let's just rehearse it. Uh, that, that's the inner parent in me, the, the natural parent in me, the natural Pharisee in me coming out to say, okay, now you know, now we can really get down to business, and I can make you feel lousy about it. And instead, Nathan says, well, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. And I look at that and say, you're letting him off the hook. You got him right where you want him. The setup was perfect. He fell right into your trap. Now's when you pounce. And he says, David, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. God's forgiveness was immediate and without cost. Maybe I should add without cost to David. There was a cost. The cost and the price was paid many, many years later when the son of David outside of Jerusalem, died on a cross for sinners. That was the cost. It was paid. But for David in this moment, God's forgiveness was immediate and without cost. Psalm 32. Just read you a few verses from the very beginning. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Through my groaning all day long, night and day, your hand was heavy upon me, and my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. Here it is. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Immediate and without cost. Bergen says David's confession came with immediacy, without denial, without excuse. The Lord's forgiveness was equally direct and unrestrained. It was also without cost. Forgiveness was granted the king without requiring him to first make animal sacrifices or give great gifts to the Lord. He just said, okay, your sin is put away. You will not die. What do we take away? This episode teaches us about sin, repentance, and forgiveness. One thing I want you to see as we wrap it up is this. Sin is always lurking in our lives, always, 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 and we must put it to death. Sin is always lurking in our lives, and we've got to put it to death. The Puritans used to talk about mortifying sin. We use the word mortify to say, I was embarrassed. I was mortified, but the real idea behind that is I was so embarrassed I thought I might die. The real idea behind mortification is death, is killing it, is an assault, a violent attack. And The Puritans used to talk about you have got to mortify your sin. You've got to be killing sin, John Owen said, or sin will be killing you. One of those two things will happen. It makes you think of Cain, Genesis 4. You can go back and look at it later. Cain is wrestling with his heart. He is angry. He is bitter. He's got all sorts of mess going on in his life. And the Lord looks at Cain and he says, Cain, sin is crouching at your door. It's ready to pounce. It wants to tear you limb from limb. You've got to fight it, Cain. You've got to kill it. It is crouching at your door waiting. Paul, Romans 8, talks about putting sin to death in our lives. If you don't do it, you don't put sin to death, you find yourself with the hand of the Lord heavy on you, wasting away internally, you lose all control of the consequences of your sin, both in your own life and in the lives of other people who maybe had absolutely nothing to do with your sinful decision at all. You don't get to control it. When you look at this story and you think about this idea of fighting sin, the only way that you and I can walk away and respond appropriately is repentance and killing sin. Can I tell you the worst way to walk away from this lesson is to walk away like the Pharisee that Jesus described in Luke 18 who looked down at the tax collector and said, Thank you, God, that I am not like that guy. And it's so tempting to... For us, from our vantage point, to read 2 Samuel 11 and to say, Thank you, God, that I am not as dumb as David. What an idiot. What a fool. Don't walk away with that mindset. Paul warned the Corinthians, Those of you who stand need to pay heed, take heed, lest you fall. Sin is crouching at your door. You've got to put it to death. Alan Redpath says this. I don't know that I had room on your notes for it. It's a short quote. He says, the real question for all of us is, are we prepared to face sin? Not to discuss someone else's sin, but to face our own. It's easy to discuss other people's sins. It's easy to think about David and all his mess-ups. It's much harder to look at our own lives and to say, what are the sins in my life that I've got to put to death. And when God exposes those sorts of things, you've got two options. You can run to God or from God. And for months, David is running from God. God's hand is heavy on him. He's wasting away spiritually. And then Nathan shows up, he confronts him, and he begins to run to God. And the last lesson we see is this. God's grace can forgive the worst of sinners. The worst. The worst. Even those that you think when you back them into a corner and they finally confess it, you think, now I just need to give it to them, that's when grace kicks in. And it's as simple as, I've sinned against the Lord. And Nathan replies and says, God's put away your sin. You won't die. There's a simplicity in it. There's a beauty in it. There's something in it that we think needs to be more complicated. There's something in us that thinks... Okay, but what do I need to do? Nathan says, nothing. You confessed it. Right? When you were covering it, God's hand was heavy on you. But when you uncovered it and you confessed it, God put it away. It's done. You will not die. There's a beautiful, beautiful simplicity to it. You don't have to beg, you don't have to barter, you don't have to grovel, you don't have to ask twice. Just confess it. You don't have to go out and register internet domains to sell to the Catholic Church for absolution for the third week of March 1987 or for the spring of the year when the kings went out to battle and I stayed home. You just confess and God's grace is enough. It is enough to forgive the worst of sinners.